Welcome everyone to Social Work Stories, the podcast. I'm Mim Fox and I'm here joined with my co-host Liz Murphy. How are you Liz? I am going very well. Oh good. Good afternoon everyone. Good afternoon. Last time we recorded an episode Liz, it was a bit of a tiring one for us. I have to say it was the episode we recorded was the one where we discussed acknowledgement of country and um, and I don't know about you but it's taken me a minute to actually come down from that episode and thinking about all the um, amazing you know insights we had at that point. What about you? Where are you at now? I have been constantly thinking about it and also having conversations with other social workers. So since we last recorded, I actually have given my first acknowledgement of country off the back oh. of our discussions. And um, and I really was very conscious of everything we'd spoken about. I don't think I did a brilliant job, I have to say. And I did say to people in the room, maybe you should listen to my discomfort in the episode of the podcast we recorded. Because I felt like it wasn't, because I'm not used to it, it actually wasn't the most natural thing but I was thinking about the principles we talked about around collaboration and around sending out an invitation for a partnership in communication and so you know I did my best it's a learning journey I think it sure is did anyone respond when you did your they said I did okay I appreciate the social work tribe that always stands behind you in those moments so that was good (laughs) Talking about the Social Work Tribe, I wanted to do a shout out to the people who have sent us uh, comments on Twitter Mm. um, about how they found the episode. Uh, We really appreciate that and we'd love it if more people would actually get on board and engage in conversation with us about it because it's something you and I are continuously wrestling with. Yes, please. Before we carry on into this episode, I um, also just wanted to correct something that we said last time around. We talked about who was it who can deliver an acknowledgement of country and what we said was that an Aboriginal person could do a welcome to country whereas a non-Aboriginal person could do an acknowledgement. Actually, just to put a correction out there, it's actually that a welcome to country can only be performed by an Aboriginal person who is from that land or country specifically where the welcome is happening, but also it's double actually. They also have to have been accepted or given permission by the community to do that. So usually by default that ends up being an appointed elder Right. Uh, it, in an acknowledgement to country, however, is something that can be performed by anyone else. Whether they're Aboriginal or not doesn't matter. Anybody else can do the acknowledgement of country. It's the welcome to country that is very specific in the permission. Right. Yeah. That's so, great to clarify. Yeah, just to put that out there to let everybody know. Coming into our episode today, it's almost like we're going back to our roots, Liz. We're going to hear from a social worker uh, who uh, has been working in corrective services for many, many years in criminal justice. And this story is about a time where they were working in a corrective services facility in a prison. And um, and the work that they did with uh, one of the inmates at that point in time I do want to just couch it in that this person has worked in many different facets of corrective services over their career. So they've worked in the more the community aspect as well. All the different, you know, corrective services, social workers in corrective services find themselves in all different sorts of the criminal justice spectrum, right? So whether it's people coming into the system, whether it's people in jail, whether it's people coming out and then on probation and parole, 
this person has that perspective of all of those times. Okay. But this story itself is set in the work that they did within a prison. So one of the things that I think might be useful for our listeners is the story is about a very it's a very big story about about a, one of the residents in the correctional facility who is very very inspirational and interesting. But I would like to suggest to the people who are listening to listen for the social work practice and intervention that is woven into it very subtly and I think you and I will spend time um, focusing on that in more detail but she's very very I guess she's yeah very subtle in in the ways in which she talks about her work with this particular person yeah for those of you for those of you who would not be listening for that you might say well where is the social work intervention Mm. but that's what we want to unpack a little bit when we come back sure do okay see you then So I worked in a rehabilitation, mental health rehabilitation unit in Thin um, Maximum Security Prison and we had referrals coming in from various different places, either different prisons or our outpatients clinic and uh, this man in particular came from the outpatients clinic. He had been at other prisons and started on medications but they weren't holding him. He was still... Um, experiencing various psychotic symptoms and they wanted to get him to have um, his medication looked at. He, When he came over, he had this kind of warmth to him. I remember that. However, he was really intimidating. He was about 6'5", um, African man, not lanky but not overly muscly but quite intimidating to look at he didn't really make eye contact he couldn't speak English well at all it was very very broken he had been through a system and I don't think he understood the system well at all because he was no one could he couldn't understand really what people were saying and um, they couldn't understand him and I, I think he was actually the more psychotic he was the worse his English got so that even made it harder and more frustrating for him. So when he got really frustrated, he'd get really angry and start uh, just becoming more intimidating, really, yelling, storming out, things like that. So when he came to our unit, we had uh, about 28 guys in the unit and we ran programs. Um, He didn't join any of the programs at the start. He hardly came out of his room. He would only come and talk to us if it was in like a clinical review because he was trying to explain what was going on for him. But again, the doctor couldn't understand exactly what was happening because of his English. And um, so they kept on adjusting his medication and he would stop taking it. Um, and we couldn't figure out why he was doing that. So I started doing a big file review to find out exactly what had happened for him what his life story was um, to try and figure out an end to be able to start talking to him. Um, And then when I did the file review, I realised that he was having um, visual and auditory hallucinations of a wife of his that had passed away. 
and she was coming into his cell all the time and she was sitting and talking to him, which was very, very, very sad for him. She was actually saying good stuff, like telling him he's a good person. She was um, telling him to go join everyone and, you know, go talk to the staff and tell them what was going on for him. But instead of hearing her, he was just freaked out because she was there and, and everything. So that, that caused big issues for him. She'd come mainly at night too, um, or when he wasn't distracted really, that's, that's what happened. So one of the first things I did, we had a woman that worked with us um, and she was an older woman and everyone loved her because she was very feisty and tiny and oh, she was easily in her 80s. And she was an old English teacher. So she used to come in and teach like one-on-one English and grammar and things like that. So I asked him if he would be interested and he at the at start said he wasn't interested and um, because he didn't really come out of his room and things like that. So I started slowly introducing them and um, he realised that she's not intimidating and he was – I think he was really embarrassed more than anything. And anyway, so we – finally convinced him to do it and he would sit with her for about an hour every week and the more he did that the more confidence he got um and the more he started talking to us as well because he started trusting us um that we were actually going to help him and he did start socializing with some guys but it was very very rare because I think they were quite um intimidated by him as well um especially because he would you know, when he comes out, he's he looks quite intimidating. I can't really describe how intimidating he looks. Um, so once his English started getting a bit better, I realised that he was really, really smart. Um, so I started talking to him about what academic stuff he had done and I'd found out that he did university when he was in Africa and he nearly became an accountant um, and then he moved to Egypt. He actually became an accountant there. Um, and then he moved to Australia and then that's when I, he started opening up a bit about why he was moving around um, and what had happened for him. And he was part of the war. He I saw his family get killed um, at a very young age. He saw his mum, sisters and dad all die. His older brother looked after him um, and the community that they were in, they all looked after him um, and raised him together and he was very very fortunate to be smart and be able to go through school um and the community from what I remember like raised the money for him to go to university for him um but then the soul could be I think because of his height and um the way he carried himself the soldiers of where he lived actually approached him and said that that he needed to come and fight for them and he didn't want to do that he used to say it's just like fighting against my brothers. Why would I do that? Um, so in the end, he hid a lot and then he had to escape. So he escaped through over to Egypt um, and he settled in, down. He had a family. Um, I don't know where if that was in Africa or Egypt, but he's definitely had a daughter. Then the soldiers found him there, unfortunately. And so he ended up migrating over to Australia he did become a citizen, um, but he didn't study. He ended up just working in his own community, working in a as a factory hand. He was very, very spiritual, very, very community-minded, so he was just working with them a lot. So he didn't really 
learn how to speak English or anything like that because he was really surrounded by um, his brothers. Yeah, and then that's sort of what happened. Um, and then he ended up with us. He still um, wanted to learn. He he's. I realised that he had this real thirst to learn anything and it was always really complex stuff like physics and so he definitely had that brain. But, the yeah, the English was the biggest thing. So what we did was we'd get him into groups, even if he didn't understand what was going on. Um, he would come in and sit with us and listen to the groups. He would, um, if we gave out handouts, he would highlight the words that he didn't understood if he couldn't understand what they meant. Um, and then he started bringing in a dictionary and we'd encourage him to look up the words and discuss with us what the words meant and things like that. So he just got better and better. And then he got so good that he actually started writing a lot. He wrote a whole, oh God, it would have been about a hundred page book on grammar. It's huge. Um, that was just done on flimsy A4 paper that he had obviously been you know, doing at night and things like that because he realised that the more he did work and distracted himself, the visions and stuff wouldn't come to him. So he would, um, he had this very strict schedule like English on this day and maths on this day and he would have um, like even times that he had to abide by otherwise he knew that he would get sick. Um, He was taking medication but uh, even if we upped the medication, he wouldn't take it because it made him too drowsy and he couldn't study. So um, he was on a very low dose of medication for a, such a guy, a big guy. Um, yeah, but he was coping with that. Yeah, so the grammar book, he ended up doing it for his daughter. He wanted her to learn. Um, so when I found that out and when he showed me the book, I ended up getting some funding and um, making it into a book for him so it was bound and made him a few copies um, which was a lot of work Um, but he was able to send that out to his family which just made him so happy so happy and um, that any little things like that got him out more and more and more he was one of the reasons I started a writing group um, to try and get him to write more and there was a few others that were really really creative in there so I get them to write stories and even make believe stories or their stories of what they what had happened for them or whatever they wanted to do um and then I realized that I'm not a school teacher and I had no idea what I was doing so (laughs) I started thinking okay what can we do with this all this work that we were creating so we made a newsletter and we started doing this newsletter and um, just for the unit, like a unit newsletter, um, but actually it became very successful um, that it ended up going prison-wide, um, which was a big, big piece of work, actually. Um, but my, the guys that I worked with and him, he would, they would, we'd get all these stories from other prisoners and I, I would vet them. They weren't allowed to come through until we had sort of agreed that this was okay story. And then I would get um, him and another guy as my editors and they would put it all together and they would make the newsletter and then I would adjust it for them and do all the work behind the scenes. Um, But they were just so proud that they had, you know, something that they've created. We also had this big day where all these people came in um, to celebrate the work that we were doing and there was about 100 or 150 people in the unit um, and I got asked to do a speech and I 
did not want to do that um, because I felt like it wasn't really me that was on show. So I actually asked the guys if they would want to do something. So there was about five of them that one of them had written a poem and one of them had done a drawing and another one just wanted to thank everyone. And, um, yeah, so we sort of worked on that for weeks on how are they going to display this and how are they going to do it. And um, he wrote this big speech on his life and what he had achieved while he was in the unit with us. Um, and he was very nervous. I remember um, it. he was quite a perfectionist too, so it took him a long time to write the speech. And then finally he got up and um, started practising in front of us. So we'd have like a small group of six or something and, you know, get him to stand up and practise. And he was holding the piece of paper and it was shaking, it was shaking. He couldn't control himself. Um, and then he... On the day when I called him up to do the speech, he came up without the piece of paper and he had memorised the whole thing and he stood up and talked to the whole room. He had people in tears. It was, um, it was, I was nearly floored. I couldn't believe that he had done that. It was just amazing. Um, he still, his English still wasn't great, but, um, and it was quite difficult to understand sometimes, but. He was so confident. He just got up there and did it and everyone was just amazed by him. And really from that point it grew and grew. He started, um, we encouraged him to um, use his creativity, I guess, more than anything for confidence. So he would paper mache aeroplanes and I'm talking, they look like, like these big aeroplanes and they were like easily a metre long and um, they were incredible and yeah. Anyway, so he he kept on doing things like that, inventing things. He um, and it did end up getting to the point where um, he had to move out of the unit, but we didn't. Well, I, I think people weren't sure where he would go and everything, and it it wasn't something that was going to happen very quickly. But when I spoke to him about it, he was um, really grateful for everything that had happened for him in the unit and he could articulate that and he knew that he would go out and he'd get stronger and he could last in the units and he knew how to control his mental health a lot better by distracting himself and things like that. I know that he has um, moments of relapse, which does tend to happen, but he seems to get back on track once he's really busy. Um, But yes, that's really the story of him. Um, I have seen him again since that time as well and he's um doing extremely well still studying um in a unit of that's got less staff to occupy him but he still seems so busy and just um helping others out and telling everyone that everything's going to be okay and he just looks after everyone he was sort of like a bit of a mentor for the young guys when they came into the unit if they were having troubles he would um, tip them down and create a safe space for them and because he was again so huge they just sort of sat around him in his room and he'd make them cups of tea and yeah it was just really nice and it's it's good to know that you know this man was going to be in prison for a very long time um, and that's a quite a disturbing thing to happen to you very later in, in life um, he wasn't young and that he could still see the positives in life and he was still able to um, accept that this had happened to him and accept 
that this was going to be his life so let's try and make the most of it and stay out of the crap that happens in prison it was really another thing um it tends to happen a lot of the guys get caught up in the prison mentality and he just didn't he was always so positive and you know he always was very spiritual and um very family and friend orientated and he just believed the best in humanity and it was just continued all the way through So let's talk about it. I wanted to start by focusing on how restrictive uh, working and corrective services can be. But it wasn't so for this social worker's practice. Yeah. I mean, this is just based on social workers telling me some of their stories who have worked in uh, the forensic um, realm, how it can be quite restrictive on their practice. But I wanted to spend some time with you, Mim, talking about the work that this social worker was able to do. I want to come back to her creativity, but can we just look at the interventions as she describes them with this particular person? Definitely, absolutely. Just before we do that, can we just say that there's a lot of differing values within corrective services, right? Whether the point of the facility is for punishment, whether the point is for rehabilitation or restoration, yeah? Um, And what I really liked actually about this story was that she hadn't bowed to any of those philosophies. Mm. She was actually very client-centred and... Um, was really working with him on what were the needs that he had, regardless of the fact that he was living his life right now in a prison cell as opposed to in his home environment. Yes. Yeah. So the first thing I listened to was the beautiful detective work that went on to find out more about who this person was. Yeah. He had isolated himself in, the, in his cell. Um, and no one was really able to reach him. He had the, the barrier with language. That's right. And, I mean, it must have been incredibly isolating for this person. She does a very extensive audit of the file to get a sense of his story and discovers he cannot speak the language. <laughs> yes, amazing she needed to find that out through the audit <laughs> file. Oh. But doesn't that doesn't that go to say about the surface impressions that people have in any large bureaucratic organisation, right? So he's been labelled because of his size, because of the way he is responding to people. He's been labelled as someone who's non-communicative. It took her going to the files to work out that actually he doesn't speak English. Mm. And then her focus was connecting. How do we connect with this man? And I loved the use of the 80-year-old feisty volunteer to chip away at, um, I guess, his defences. You know, he would have been very defended in in a place like a prison. Um, Did did you like that? I I love that use of... Yeah, the feisty. I know, I know. I did think to myself in the film of in the movie of this story, who's going to play that feisty? My mother. <laughs> my mother. 
I, th- I went straight to my mother. Fantastic. The, the feisty 80-year-old. Yeah. Who would have too. She, I could just see she would have been one of those people that she, she just connects. So anyway, so they've got the connecting going. Yeah. And in the course of this, this social worker, and I love the gentle pace. The, he, I think we've got a slow burn social work story here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Slowly getting to know who this person is. And then as he develops in confidence he then starts to reconnect with other people it's almost like he's being tethered by the relationships that she's building for him around him so there he is kind of in his isolated individual state and she's actually bringing these connections to him in subtle ways that actually are allowing him to be tethered in an everyday Mm -hmm. reality that's right that later ends up with him engaging in the group. That's exactly right. But before that, of course, the, the files reveal that he was having auditory and visual hallucinations of his wife. Yeah. But Mim, as you said to me before we were recording, she doesn't pathologise. No. Does she? What does she do? Yeah, so she, what I really loved about this was that she talks about how his wife came to visit him at night. And so she didn't say he's having visual hallucinations. She didn't say anything like that because actually that's not his experience of what's happening. He, this is a man in grief, mm. right? And the temptation to pathologise grief, especially when you're working in a large organisation that requires you to account for every intervention that you do, make notes about everything you're doing, um, the... the, the in, um, focus on pathology is just ridiculous so for her to be able to step back from that and to be able to say actually I'm with him on his experience he's being visited by his wife and we will work from that basis around these experiences that he's having I thought was so respectful Liz like I really did absolutely and anyone who's worked in grief work knows that this is not an unusual occurrence no not at all I'd, it'd be interesting to know how she normalised that with him. Um, but but I guess a whole lot of, of um, the way he was structuring his day was to avoid being exposed to those. He would have been so scared. So and she said that, that he was so he was scared from these visits, right? But she would have had to do some normalising work with him around that mm. so that he realised, you know, often for people who are in deep grief, often these sorts of occurrences can be incredibly comforting and supportive. And like she said, his wife was actually saying to him things like, you are a strong person, right? Messages he would have needed to hear to get on with his everyday in that environment. Mm. So for her to normalise that would have been vital, I think. Mm. Mim, she then moved from the individual work into group work. Yes. Now, you and I love group work. (laughs) We do. And we worry sometimes about the step away from um, Australian social workers and groups. Yes, we have talked about that, haven't we? How it's not as fashionable. Group work is actually not as fashionable in Australian social work as it once was. Yeah. It's a shame. It's a real shame. I think this is a classic example of its therapeutic value and its connection value. Um, but it sounds like it was a really interesting group too because it, it connected him but it also helped him um, with his language development. Mm. I love that book, the, the grammar book. Yes, how interesting, that amazing? And how she valued that and 
then I got was it that group then that wrote the newsletter yes so yeah he he wrote the grammar book and they moved from there to doing a small in unit just for their unit only newsletter which then was so popular and important that it got adopted by the prison wide and she was saying that's actually quite amazing that that doesn't happen normally so good yeah and and I, one of the things that I really like is moving away from the more structured um, one-on-one intervention work. Now, you cannot replicate the value of what he would have uh, got out of that experience through the group and through the newsletter. No, no, and, no. That's right. They're completely different, aren't they? And I think that's, that, that actually shines a light on her creativity. Mm. And can we talk a little bit about creative practice and oh, social work? Yeah, because I think um, it's it's certainly demonstrated here, but it made me reflect on times when I have done something different in my practice. And one of the things that I was recalling was the work when I was working in domestic violence counselling service. We did a lot of one-on-one counselling. And I managed to secure some money from an unnamed corporation (laughs) to take women on retreats. Oh, beautiful. And we used to take women who had escaped from violent relationships on retreats and just nurture them. Um, um, We had beautiful meals cooked for them. We had um, students of massage therapy come in and massage them. Uh, we put them up in beautiful a beautiful retreat center but one of the things that we did was we used story uh, the value of story in healing fantastic and we had a storyteller that would tell them a story every night before they went to bed and she would weave in healing stories Mm. into to kind of send them off to bed with the possibility of a you know a good night's sleep nice dreams but this group also wrote a book about their experiences that they then we then published for women who were living or escaping from violence mm-hmm. and then they or they also did um artworks that were were then um uh, shown in a local art gallery and the women got to you know have a have a celebration with their book and a piece of art and whilst i know for them it was a very yeah, you know, a very healing um, time for them. It was also very nourishing for me as a social worker. It actually was a real shot in the arm in terms of my own feeling toward my therapeutic practice. And then I continued to do that. I just Did it allow you to see your therapeutic practice in actually a different light, Liz? And also the client. Yeah. To yeah. also be with them in a different way. Because you'd unlocked actually an aspect to them in yeah. that environment that may not come out in a one-on-one session or in a group session that's in a clinical environment, right? That's right, that's right, because yeah. we had the time and the space yeah. for women to connect with their – because the other um, therapists came along, yeah. but also for them to connect with each other. They were sharing space, they were sharing meals, they were sharing stories. But isn't that really the value of group work, right? Mm. Um I absolutely love hearing that because for me that's actually the story is the essence of it. They're there in that environment because they've lived through a story 
that is not a story they would ever have wanted to be a part of, right? No. But being there in that environment allows them now to own that story in a different way. And by connecting with other people's stories, they're actually seeing a validity Mm. in their own story, yeah? Mm. I really love that. And I love that then you have a parallel therapeutic story that goes alongside that. That, that's absolutely the value. And I think going back to our story from our social worker this episode, I do think that's exactly what's happened for her as well. She's hooked into the story of this man in and through creativity being able to unleash not just a different perspective for him on his story but also a different perspective of her interventions. Absolutely. And, and I got a sense of her being able to step back and observe not interfere too much, but a, it, uh, that that event that 150 people went to. Well, doesn't that sound incredible? I had a sense of her feeling incredibly proud of not just this gentleman but the other members of the group mm. um, and the way in which they were able to um, rise to the occasion. Um, so she wouldn't have she would have been observing all of this, not having to do too much. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so what does that do for her as a social worker? What does that do for her in terms of how she views her practice? It would have um, certainly put social work um, on the map in terms of... It may, but it may not have. And I think this comes back to the invisibility of social work as well because for a lot of people at that event where 150 people were there, they may not have recognised her role in the lead-up to what happened on that day and in the changes that had happened for that man. My guess is she's actually one of the invisible magicians behind the screen, right? I think you're probably right. You know, so I I do actually think, yes, in some ways it's incredibly validating in her practice, but in other ways it also shines a light on the invisibility of our practice a lot of the time. Which is why it's good for us to take a moment oh, and just shine a light on this. I agree completely. You wanted to broaden it out too. Yeah, so the, the, the aspect I wanted to talk about just before we finish up is actually about the idea that this man's journey, and we've, we've touched on it, that actually he was seen in a very surface way and through understanding his story, she's gotten into a deeper understanding of who he is as a person, right? But... This idea that actually the migration experience can change a person so fundamentally that actually if you looked back on his history, he'd gone to university, he was an accountant, an incredibly intelligent man who had lived his life in different ways. He then finds himself in Australia, however many years later, in prison for a crime that she does, she never identifies the crime, which I found really interesting and important, that actually that wasn't important to her, mm. why he was there, right? But she acknowledges that he's going to be in prison for a very long time still to come, right? You could almost say that this is an entirely different person mm-hmm. on an, in an entirely different life, living a different story. But that's not what she's saying, that actually I think this story highlights that a person... A person's life can change and adapt and move, but having an acknowledgement of the impact of migration, the impact of uh, education on a person's life actually can change them fundamentally. Mm. And I love that she was so crucial in that for him. Oh, so do I. Mm. And that she saw that. She could see it. That's exactly right. As she was doing it, as she was doing it, and now on reflection as well. 
Yeah, amazing. Amazing. I hope that we continue to have conversations around criminal justice, actually, Liz, because I think that's an area of social work practice that we don't hear a lot about. It is in many ways a bit of a closed book. And I think I've read a few reviews where people are actually asking for that. They are. They're asking for criminal justice and forensic social work as well. Yes. And, um, and we've been really fortunate in being able to link up with a number of social workers who work in those spaces, which is great. We have. Which is great. So um, talking about reviews, we want to take a moment to thank everyone who has taken time to leave us a rating and a review. I think you are amazing. Aren't these people and lovely? I feel incredibly guilty because... I haven't been leaving other podcasts that I listen to reviews, <laughs> and I, I'm starting now. Are I'm you? Sta- I am. Oh, I am you're an outreach social worker, Liz. When I read them, I, my heart swells, and I, I just want to say thank you. Um, yes, fantastic. And we we all really loved this next review by Scuttle seventy five. I love this one. Thank you, Scuttles. Listen to this. I was unsure whether to continue my studies and do the Bachelor of Social Work. After listening to this podcast, I have no doubt that this is what I want to be doing. Your insight, ability to articulate the social worker's experiences and reflections are all fascinating. Great job. Well, great job to you, Scuttle75. And I want to know. I want to know. Send us a review or send us an email and let us know once you've started how you're finding it. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I'm so pleased to hear that actually that's helped that person get on with their social work studies. That's fantastic. Come into our tribe. Come one to with the us. tribe. Scuttle 75. <laughs> You're always welcome by the, the fireside with us. That's it. Now, if you'd like to help us out, you can do it right now as I'm reading this. You can get your phone out right now, open the podcast app and leave a five-star rating and review right now if you want. You know what it is, Liz? Some people, they just think they don't have the time. Or they think, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then they don't come back to I'm it. Don't person. do it later. I know. And I am too. But no, I know we're I, not going to be that person anymore. Well, that's what I'm saying. I want to say to everyone who's listening, just get your phone out. Get, do it right now. It's so fast, so quick. And then we get to keep doing what we're doing, which is fabulous. Absolutely. Yeah. Do that. Do that. It'll only take a few seconds and it'll make a massive difference for us. We'll just keep on talking with you. <laughs> Which we If love. you tell someone, you do a review, then we can keep on doing this. Yeah. So farewell, everyone. We'll touch base again in another Have a good fortnight, fortnight everyone. Yes. Take care of yourselves. Do fabulous things and practice well. Did you want to thank anyone in particular apart from... I do. I do. Thank you for reminding me. What I really want to say thank you to today is Ben Joseph, our producer... And Justin Stesh, our other producer, who put so much hard work into our podcast. And we love it. We do. Couldn't do it without the four of us. We couldn't. We couldn't. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, listeners. And um, have a good fortnight, Liz. You Take too, care. Bye. See ya. Bye. Hello listeners, it's Ben here. I'm your favourite Social Work Stories podcast producer. Sorry Justin. Now I'm here to tell you that we have a new social media handle that you can use to follow us across all your social media apps. You can now find us on Twitter and Instagram at 
S-O-W-K Stories Pod. That's at S-O-W-K Stories Pod. Check it out. Send us a tweet to say hi, or maybe you could tag us on an Insta pic of where you're at while you're listening to the latest episode. Please share a link to our episodes in your Facebook news feed and with your own social work tribe. And keep spreading the love for your favourite new podcast, Social Work Stories. We really, really appreciate it. Also, keep your eyes out for our new website coming out soon. We'll be sharing the details of this in upcoming episodes, so remember to stay tuned. And until then, much love from the Social Work Stories team. Speak to you soon.